Hello, this is Fernando Revelo from Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this educational activity on diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema in rural Latinx patients. Let's start by recognizing the scope of diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. In 2018, the estimated prevalence of diabetes among adults in the United States was 10%, about 26 million cases, 17% of US Latinx populations versus 8% of US whites. Globally, uh, 630 million people are expected to have diabetes by 2045. Retinopathy develops by 10 to 15 years after the onset of diabetes. With increasing prevalence of diabetes, more people are at risk for developing diabetic retinopathy and greater resources are required to identify and treat this condition. The risk of developing diabetic retinopathy in patients with diabetes is closely associated to duration of disease and glycemic control. And both are important. If you have a patient that has had a long time of duration of diabetes, they have a higher chance of developing diabetic retinopathy. At the same time, if you have good metabolic control, patients have a lower probability of developing diabetic retinopathy. If you have poor metabolic control, the chances of developing diabetic retinopathy are higher. The prevalence of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema varies with race and ethnicity. It is higher in Hispanics than in African-Americans, Chinese-Americans, and whites, both for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Common screening tests for diabetic retinopathy include direct ophthalmoscopy, visual acuity, indirect ophthalmoscopy, visual fields, and color fundus photographs, which have high sensitivity and specificity. Many common vision screening tools are inadequate for diagnosing diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. But the important thing to keep in mind is that if there are anomalies or failure of any of these tests, it demands for referral to an ophthalmologist with diabetic retinopathy expertise. Let's hear from a Spanish speaking patient about the barriers he has encountered uh, in, during the management of his diabetic retinopathy. Hello, my name is Manuel Garcia, and thank you very much for being part of this. This retino retinopathy was diagnosed by Dr. Arevalo, and it has been a couple of years. I was referred to him by my regular of, uh, eye doctor. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm very happy that I did meet Dr. Arevalo. For two reasons, I, I understand he's uh, very, has a very good position, the Wilmer Eye Institute, number one. Number two, he's a Spanish-speaking person. And that was kind of important to me. Let's turn to general barriers to diabetic retinopathy screening. 
we can divide those into two uh, main categories. Those associated to physicians and healthcare providers and another one related to patients. On, in terms of physicians and healthcare providers, we can include uh, on clear roles and responsibilities, limited time for office visits, lack of a specialty providers to refer patients to, uh, inability to access records outside of their own healthcare network, poor communication from eye care specialists, and to be unsure about which provider to refer patients to. In terms of uh, patients' uh, barriers, uh, in those include difficulty differentiating a screening test from comprehensive exams, uh, lack of symptoms, limited understanding of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema or the exam findings, poor communication from providers, limited provider networks, logistic difficulties accessing a specialist, exams and or treatments being unpleasant and competing health priorities. Health insurance coverage may increase adherence to annual eye exam recommendations. In 2016, individuals with diabetes were more likely to have visited an eye doctor in the past 12 months if they had health insurance coverage. Adding a health savings account to a high deductible health plan increases annual exam rates. Access to retina specialists is limited in most US counties. Teleophthalmology could potentially improve access. If we look at the number of optometrists, it is much higher than the number of ophthalmologists, and the number of ophthalmologists is much higher than the number of retina specialists. Teleretinal cameras in non-ophthalmology offices are one solution. However, one study found that staff availability, insurance coverage, reimbursement, and patient preferences for traditional eye exam were cited as barriers. Let's talk about a specific barriers to diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema care in the Latinx community. Those include language, lack of access to health insurance, lack of familiarity with US health systems, immigration concerns, lack of transportation, inability to get an appointment, lack of access to clinician, and bias in medicine. In terms of diabetic retinopathy in Latinx population, Los Angeles Latino Eye Study demonstrated that diabetic retinopathy incidence is about 34% over four years, with 39% with worsening or progression of diabetic retinopathy, and only 35% were adherent to recommended eye care screenings. Diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema management requires a multidisciplinary approach. It requires a group of people, including a primary care clinician, an ophthalmologist, an endocrinologist, a physician assistant, and a nurse practitioner. The primary care provider role includes to treat diabetes consistent with evidence-based recommendations to help manage hemoglobin A1C levels, to screen for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema, and to refer patients for ophthalmic examination and screening uh, if needed. 
we all work hard to provide coordinated care, but how do they set for slope to our patients? Let's find out. I am kind of proud of my culture and in, in general of the Hispanic culture. So uh, because of that, I think it's important to employ to go to uh, Hispanic doctors. I'm not being elitist or anything like that, but it, it is good to, to be with that type of company, to me. I, I came to this country and speaking English with an accent, but speaking English and understanding English. It is critically important that we make the effort to learn to work together. Let's talk a little bit about communication and planning in rural areas. Rural patients have less access to specialists versus urban patients. Patients must travel longer distances and spend more time to obtain eye care. Rural communities are often served by multi-payer health systems, which are less likely to encourage preventive services. Primary care providers may have difficulty identifying when patients are due for diabetic eye screening. Patients may not see the value in regular eye screening. Rural patients are more likely to be uninsured, older, poorer than urban patients. And rural patients are less likely to receive guideline concordant care. What can we do for our patients who live in remote areas? Language is one of the barriers that my patients tell me most frequently uh, that they need to overcome for the management of their diabetic retinopathy. I was never in the situation, but um, it's important. If, if you cannot fully communicate, find somebody who can help you with it. Definitely bring your relatives, bring your grandmother, whoever speaks better English than you. And but, but not just speak, understand. And not only doing a consultation in situations like hospitalization, uh, uh, if you cannot communicate with your healthcare provider, you know, you're in pretty sad shape. So bring whoever you think of that can help you to communicate. Thank you for sharing those valuable insights. Let's turn to incorporating technology it is important to use translation services and patient education tools, including bilingual patient reminder systems, a smartphone bilingual translation applications. But let's keep in mind that in-person translators are and remain the gold standard. In terms of telehealth, it can reduce travel time and distance, can increase annual screening rates from 26 to 40% in one study, from 50% to 75% increase in another study, and it can be very cost-effective depending on a screening interval, population size, and disease burden. I had one with my cardiologist when COVID was, you know, at its peak and we were not vaccinated. And I also had one with my nephrologist. Um, it, it, fill the void, but 
you know, always is better a person to person deal. But uh, because of what we are living through, that's the next best thing. Artificial intelligence is another great technology. Artificial intelligence can be leveraged to evaluate more patients more efficiently. Uh, there are a couple of uh, devices available approved by the FDA, including the IDX DR system and the IART system. And a recent study on real-world validation demonstrated in seven artificial intelligence systems a negative predictive value between 83 and 94 percent, and sensitivities between 51 and 86 percent. I believe artificial intelligence is going to be the future for screening diabetic retinopathy. To get the best outcomes in the management of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema, we need frequent injections of intravitreal anti-VGF therapy. To increase that compliance in our patients, we need to partner with our patients. We need them to understand the different options and therapies that we have available to them. Let's talk about how to do that. The state of the art for diabetic macular edema management is uh, anti-VGF therapy. It is the most effective and safest. It is the first line therapy and it works best when administered early. However, we have other options including intravitreal injections of corticosteroids, which is the second line option, laser photocoagulation, which is ideal for patients that have non-centered involving diabetic macular edema, and prosplanar vitrectomy for patients that have vitro-retinal interface anomalies or patients that have diabetic macular edema that does not respond to any other therapies. Improved best corrected visual acuity is more likely to occur with initial anti-VEGF therapy and more injections. The DRCRNET protocol I on diabetic macular edema demonstrated that patients improve significantly visual acuity with ranibizumab with prompt laser and ranibizumab with deferred laser compared to intravitreal tramcinolone and laser photocoagulation. In addition, the study demonstrated that patients that had a higher number of injections had better visual acuity. Intravitreal injections have displaced laser photocoagulation as the most frequently used treatment for diabetic macular edema. More than 10 years ago, laser photocoagulation was the most frequent therapy for diabetic macular edema. But by year 2014, most of the patients are treated with intravitreal injections and a minority with laser photocoagulation. And we can see now in 2021 that most of the patients again are treated with intravitreal injections and very rarely we use laser photocoagulation. The DRCRNET protocol T uh, compared the effectivity of different anti-VGF therapies. Uh, it compared a flibercept, bevacizumab, and ranibizumab. And in patients with good visual acuity between 2032 and 2040, the three different agents were very effective to improve visual acuity. However, on patients with a visual acuity of 2050 or worse, a flibercept was more effective than ranibizumab and bevacizumab 
to improve visual acuity over the two years and five years of the study. In addition, central macular thickness was improved more significantly with uh, a flibercept compared to bevacizumab and ranivizumab. I, I went for a regular checkup and then he told me, you should see a retina specialist. I had surgery by Dr. Arevalo because I had an eye uh, hemorrhage and he had to clean all that out. And then that hemorrhage had also made a, a cataract that I had on the right eye uh, very dense that I couldn't hardly see out of it. And I just had surgery about 10 days ago by Dr. Behrens at the Wilmer as well. And um, so they removed the cataract and I can see much better now. The problem right now is still with the retina, but I'm sure Dr. Arevalo will be able to help me. We have to partner with our patients. Shared decision-making is important in ophthalmic care. Selecting among alternative treatment options is one of the four categories of shared decision-making. Patients want to be informed and engaged, but treatment decisions are often made without full consideration of the patient's perspective. Patients' perspectives incorporate their knowledge and beliefs, and this influences their willingness to engage in a course of care. And of course, if they are engaged, they're gonna be able to be more adherent to uh, the therapy. Patients need to be able to ask questions about their specific situation, and ophthalmologists need to know their patients' concerns. Patients' perspectives are valid and realistic only if patients are fully informed. Shared decision-making implies there are reasonable alternative choices available and our patients should know about these choices. Using the SDMQ9 tool ensures that the patient is included in decision-making. What new therapies are in the pipeline that can help us decrease the number of injections or maybe decrease the burden of injections in our patients with diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema that would increase compliance. Let's take a look at that. An option to reduce barriers to access is biosimilars of intravitreal anti-BGF therapy. Uh, one of them that has been recently approved is ranibizumab. And it has been approved by the FDA in September for wet age-related macular degeneration, retinal vein occlusion, and myopic choroidal novascularization. In Europe, this ranibizumab biosimilar has been approved for diabetic macular edema and PDR. It is anticipated that it will be available in the US in June 2022. Another option is to uh, treat and extend intervals of the injections to improve adherence. And uh, there are several prospective open-label single-arm interventional studies of a fluorcept in diabetic macular edema that have demonstrated uh, the uh, improvement in visual acuity, reduction in central macular thickness with a decreased number of injections, which has increased significantly the adherence 
to treatment. Another alternative is to use a high dose of a flibercept to allow for less frequent treatment. And the photon study uh, is a phase two, three study on central involved diabetic macular edema, trying to prove that comparing a flibercept at the usual dose of two milligrams every eight weeks to high dose a flibercept of eight milligrams every 12 weeks and every 16 weeks. The primary endpoint is best corrected visual acuity change from baseline at week 48. We're looking forward to the completion of the study in May 2023. Another option is to use some more concentrated treatment allowing for less frequent therapy. And that is brolicizumab uh, in Kite and Kestrel for diabetic macular edema to phase three uh, double blind uh, trials. Uh, brolicizumab was compared to a flibercept. In these two studies, brolicizumab six milligram was non-inferior to a flibercept in change from baseline in best corrected visual acuity at week 52. The only drawback is that brolicizumab has been associated to an increased rate of intraocular inflammation, including occlusive retinal vasculitis. Will an implanted device allow for less frequent treatment? Well, we already have that with the ranibizumab for delivery system for wet age-related macular degeneration. And it is on clinical trials with Pavilion and Pagoda for non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. It is a, a silicon permanent refillable intraocular implant with ranibizumab, and it is implanted surgically in the pars plana. And then in clinic, it is refilled every six months. So patient's burden is decreased significantly. We're hoping that it will be approved as well for diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy. And it's possible that refilling will be needed only every nine months as well. We're looking forward to the completion of the study in January, 2023 for Pavilion and in October, 2022 for Pagoda. Another option is to uh, use a different compound, an antibody biopolymer conjugate, which may allow for less frequent treatment. Uh, the uh, so-called KSI uh, 301, it has a lot of similarities with anti-BGF agents, but it has a lot more durability. In a recent phase 1b study on diabetic macular edema, uh, it demonstrated uh, improvement in visual acuity and reduction in central macular thickness with a reduced number of injections. In terms of uh, retreatment, 90% of patients received two or fewer retreatments in one year, and 50% of the patients did not require any retreatment. The phase three study comparing KSI uh, 301 with the Flibercept and sham injection uh, in treatment-naive patients with diabetic macular edema uh, is ongoing, and it's estimated to be completed in October 2022. The pathophysiology of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema is complex. It is multifactorial with many potential treatment targets. It starts with hyperglycemia, which causes a lot of changes, including inflammation that lead to oxidative stress, 
neuronal degeneration and apoptosis, retinal vascular dysfunction that lead to capillary occlusion, hypoxia and ischemia, leading to retinal neovascularization. In addition, tight junction dysregulation, vascular permeability is increased with edema and diabetic macular edema. And those are uh, upregulated by increased VGF. But there are other targets that are, are uh, being addressed with future uh, therapies. Let's put it all together, looking at some cases. These are some cases from my practice. Um, the uh, patients that are 100% had diabetic macular edema with partial response to anti-VEGF therapy. Uh, another patient had PDR with recurrent leakage, and uh, another one with diabetic macular edema, uh, PDR, vitreous hemorrhage, and retinal detachment. Let's see what virus they're encounter. Let's start with patient MT, a patient with diabetic macular edema and a partial response to treatment. On the top photographs, you will see that the normal foveal depression in the center of the retina that is seen here with a cross-sectional uh, image with optical coherence tomography is uh, swollen. And you can see an elevation in the center, especially in the left eye. And the uh, patient needed several injections of a flibercep, actually six injections of a flibercep to uh, recover the foveal depression in the center in the right eye, but still in the left eye, the retina and the center of the fovea remains swollen. Uh, the right eye can be treated uh, with injections as needed or injections uh, in a uh, treat and extend protocol. However, the left eye still needs injections every six to eight weeks uh, or um, even less frequent uh, since visual acuity is good in this particular patient. Let's turn to CC. Uh, she is a patient with PDR and recurrent leakage. Uh, on one, you will see a fluorescein angiogram, white field fluorescein angiogram that demonstrates on the, uh, depicted on the red circles, uh, retinal neovascularization that uh, was suspected on the indirect ophthalmoscopy examination that is performed as part of the annual exam of our diabetic patients. The patient received uh, seven aflibercept injections, one injection monthly, and in figure two, you can see that again, the white field fluorescein angiogram demonstrates complete regression or disappearance of the neovascularization. These fronts of neovascularization are the ones that tend to bleed and that can blind our patients by uh, developing vitreous hemorrhage. On image three, we can see recurrence of the neovascularization once the injections were stopped. And uh, uh, in figure four, after three of flibercept injections, the neovascularization has regressed completely again. After cessation of the injections, the patient had recurrence of the neovascularization on figure five. And uh, in figure six, we can see that we perform uh, in several sessions laser photocoagulation 
and the laser scars are depicted on the, uh, with the yellow arrows. And you can see the neovascularization again on the red circle is regressing. This patient may need combined therapy uh, with anti-VGF injections as well. In uh, summary for patient CC, uh, there was a good response to aflubercept injections. However, uh, recurrence of retinal neovascularization after cessation of injections occurred, and the patient needed a panretinal photocoagulation and will need combined PRP plus injection therapy. Uh, best corrected visual acuity in November 2021 was 2032. Uh, pretty good visual acuity as well. Patient MG is a patient with diabetic macular edema in the left eye and PDR vitreous hemorrhage and retinal detachment in the right eye. The retinal detachment was in the periphery. In the right eye, uh, we can see that after three injections, there is no significant change in the foveal contour. Uh, in the left eye, uh, we see that there is no significant change in the foveal contour uh, because of the presence of an epiretinal uh, membrane. After five injections, we see again that in the right eye, we have no significant change in the foveal contour. Again, the injections in the right eye were given because of vitreous hemorrhage. The patient underwent a vitrectomy and the fossa appearance of the uh, photograph uh, in uh, your lower left is because of the cataract that the patient developed. And in the right side, uh, you can see a uh, much better normalization of the foveal contour after the five injections of a flubercept uh, with the epiretinal membranes uh, on the surface of the retina. In summary, for patient MG, uh, his best corrected visual acuity in May 2021 was 2050 in the right eye and 2040 in the left eye. He underwent a vitrectomy in the right eye due to vitreous hemorrhage in June of 2021. The retina is attached, and he underwent cataract surgery in the right eye in December 16, 2021, with improvement in visual acuity. What, I, what comes to mind is that if those Spanish-speaking people are here to stay, we have to accept the fact that this is a bilingual country, a multilingual country. But I believe that the second most important language right now is Spanish. So in order to help and in order to communicate, let's make the language more available to those who haven't fully learned English. I was very fortunate, uh, very good parents that gave me a good education. I came here speaking English. But most of the Spanish-speaking people, Spanish people that come here, they come to try to make it. They don't come with an education, so they don't have the fortune to be bilingual. I, I had that, and I'm thankful to my parents for that. So I think we should be, you know, I think, uh, we're catching up. I, even in the stores, I see labels, everything is in Spanish and English. But I think we should be trying to reach out to other cultures, not just Spanish speaking people, to 
to be able to communicate better with them. And I think it will be an easier going for everybody. So that's my thought on that. Seek help from the community, even if it's an emergency. There was a situation once in Anne Arundel County that there was a child that wind up here somehow and was very sick and didn't speak English nor Spanish. She was from Guatemala and she spoke the Mayan language, which I understand some. So I heard it in the radio and I ran there and, and I was able to help, seek help. There's somebody, always there's somebody out there that is willing to help. I was living in Annapolis at the time and uh, the hospital was probably about 30 minutes from where I lived. And I said, you know, that's why I said a doctor can always seek help. By doing that, I feel that I'm contributing to that uh, closeness of cultures. And that's a good feeling. In conclusion, diabetes and diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema disproportionately affect rural Latinx patients. Latinx patients face unique barriers to diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema screening and treatment, including language barriers, immigration concerns, and lack of access to healthcare providers and health insurance. Shared decision-making is essential to obtain patient cooperation with frequent visits for treatment and monitoring. Anti-VGF therapy is the mainstay of diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema treatment. New agents and technologies can improve rural Latinx patient satisfaction and outcomes, including telehealth, artificial intelligence, translator applications, implantable drug devices, and longer acting agents. Please stand by for a Q&A session. So the question is, how do you coordinate care with your Spanish-speaking patients and their primary care doctors? And I think this is a very important question because I have noticed that in general, my patients have a lot of difficulty understanding medical terminology. And that is in general for patients that speak English. But the problem compounds on patients that speak Spanish. It becomes a real barrier for Spanish-speaking patients to understand medical terminology in a language that is not their native language. And I make a point of trying to find primary provider that speaks Spanish. And that can be not so easy, but there are sources that can be used. For example, friends and family of the patients is a good source. Maybe they know about a primary care provider that can help and speak Spanish. Other options are the internet. You can find, for example, in the American Medical Association, there is a website that allows you to find a doctor. And in that website, if the name seems Latino, for example, you can call the office and find out if the doctor, in fact, does speak Spanish or if they offer at least a translation for patients that speak Spanish. 
Another option is to ask the insurance companies. Many times they do have that information available and is something that can help find this information. Another thing that I find useful is to have some nonprofit organizations help out. For example, at Hopkins, we have Centro do Sol that is in communication with the Spanish-speaking doctors of also a specialties or a specialties in the enterprise and keep us communicated with each other. It is a great resource and some nonprofits in other institutions and in the community can do the same. The question is, can you share some examples of successful collaborations between different types of care providers, such as a primary care physician or endocrinologist, an optometrist, and a retina specialist? I'm lucky enough to have at Bayview Medical Center at the Department of Ophthalmology, the Department of Endocrinology, just side by side, and they do have providers that can see my patients almost immediately. So we are in communication through our electronic medical records and send messages all the time. And we can see their patients, they can see my patients immediately, and including Spanish-speaking patients because they have providers that speak Spanish as well. But we have, in addition, created a Diabetes Center of Excellence that is a group of physicians that can treat our patients from the primary care point of view, but also including endocrinologists, general ophthalmologists, optometrists, and retina specialists when needed. And we're all in communication through the electronic medical records. I send letters in which I include my full examination findings and recommendations, and I copy everyone on that letter. And then that way I can coordinate the care of my Spanish-speaking patients with providers that speak Spanish or have at least the possibility of getting translation for my patients. This question is about what information should family physicians give to ophthalmologists to ensure the patients they refer get the best possible eye care. I think it's important for my Spanish-speaking patients that they understand their systemic condition, but also that they understand that they need to have a referral to the ophthalmologist and again, the primary care physician is in a very good position to help our patients find an ophthalmologist that speaks Spanish or at least can uh, offer translating services for my patients. As an ophthalmologist, I need to know that our patients are well controlled in terms of their glycemia, hemoglobin A1C, their blood pressure, their cholesterol levels. I need to know that systemically they're doing well because that's going to help their eyes as well. One of the things that I notice is that patients that I have seen come late to my clinic sometimes because they didn't understand very well what was going on, not only systemically, but with their eyes. And they did not understand the risk of blindness that diabetes involves. And the primary care physician can be key to convey that information to our patients so that they understand that they need to be compliant with follow-ups to maintain their health in general, but also their vision long-term. Another question is, how can I find a Spanish-speaking ophthalmologist and optometrist in my area? 
in reality, there are some resources, including the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the American Society of Retina Specialist Directory. You can find the names on the websites and then look at the names would be my recommendation if they look Latino names. You can call the office and ask if they speak Spanish. In fact, that would be ideal. And again, if not, if translating services are provided. Part of a web page on Facebook that is for Latino doctors that work in the U.S., the, the group is called Latinos, where about 150 or more doctors are part of the group. And this is another resource that I think is important, and the link is provided as well. Those are the most common. There are other, I mean, people find me in the internet as well because of Hopkins and they find me in different networks. There are many really, but these are the most common, popular, and probably easier to use, I would say. Something else that comes up is what questions should I ask an optometrist to know if they are qualified to do a routine comprehensive eye exam for my patients with diabetes? And I think that's a very important question. Again, some optometrists are certified diabetes educators, and I think that is important. You can ask about that. Other optometrists have a special interest in caring for senior adults, and a lot of our diabetic patients are older, but remember that some are very young as well, depending on the type of diabetes they have. And I would also ask if they speak Spanish or translate in their offices. I think, like I mentioned previously, that's something that is key for our Spanish-speaking patients to understand what's going on, hearing in their own language the explanations about their disease. But I think it's key to ask if they are able to perform biomicroscopy, fundus biomicroscopy with a slit lamp examination so that they can look at details of the fundus of the retina. I would ask if they can perform as well indirect ophthalmoscopy. And ideally, they should have the capability to perform wide field photographs that can be shared for consultation with a retina specialist in case there is a doubt in terms of if a patient needs to be referred and to whom. Those are things that I think are important for an optometrist to be qualified to see our diabetic patients. The question is, generally, are Spanish-speaking patients more hesitant to take that first intravitreal injection than other patients? And in reality, I think all patients are afraid of intravitreal injections, whether they are Spanish-speaking or any other language. It is just something that scares everyone. And what I tell them is that the injections sound worse than what it really is. I tell them that the injection is given in an area of the eye that is very safe, in the white part of the eye, in an area that I know that there are no vessels or retina, so we're not going to perform or cause any damage during the procedure. I tell them that we numb the eye real well, so there is a lot of anesthesia involved, so there is no pain, and I use a small needle, special for the eye, so it won't be painful. And they trust me, and after the first injection, they realized that it wasn't so bad and they are reassured and come back for the next ones.
many of my patients come with family members and they listen to my explanation of the injection and they feel at ease as well. And I let them stay during the procedure if they want to. And sometimes they can even hold the patient's hand and that helps a lot during the, especially that first injection. Another question is how do you set expectations with your patients about intravitreal treatments? maybe regarding discomfort, adverse events, and frequency of follow-up, commitment in terms of time. I try to set the expectations in terms of discomfort very clearly that the injections are not painful, but I also tell them that they are very safe. I have to, of course, tell them that there are complications that have been described, including retinal detachment, hemorrhage, and infections. I'm not concerned that any of those complications are going to happen. And if by any chance they would happen, we can treat them. But again, it's not something that they feel worried when I tell them how uncommon those are and that we very rarely see them. In terms of time commitment, I think that it is important to tell our patients that diabetic retinopathy and especially diabetic macular edema needs to be treated frequently during the first months. I give six monthly injections and then we can extend the time between injections. That means that patients get about nine injections the first year, and that, because of extension of the time between injections, uh, decreases to about five injections the second year, maybe three to two injections during the third year, and by the fourth year, you maybe get one or two and zero injections by year five in general, according to the studies. So they understand this is a very intensive commitment at the beginning, but that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that the treatment is not forever. The question is for the patients that you showed us in the case studies, how did the fact that they were Spanish speaking change their care, either before they came to you or after they were seen by you, it seems like they had pretty severe disease in the before pictures. And that is absolutely right. Patients did come late to me already with complications of diabetic retinopathy, whether severe diabetic macular edema or already proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And I think that it is because they did not understand the severity of their disease when it was explained by other providers before. And they need to listen to these explanations in their own language to really digest that this is a blinding disease and that they need to be seen very frequently and comply with the regular follow-up and treatment so that they can avoid these complications. The next question is to talk a little bit about the experiences or the Pan American Association of Ophthalmologists' experience with caring for patients in remote rural areas. And I thank the opportunity to speak a little bit about this. I think that there are significant obstacles that Spanish-speaking patients have, especially in rural areas where there are no specialist in retina in those areas. 
we are trying to change the paradigm by partnering with Retina Global and the World Diabetes Federation. And members of the Pan American Association of Ophthalmology are participating in a project in Bolivia where we send retina specialists every two months for a week to train the local ophthalmologists and treat patients in this little town in Bolivia called Cochabamba. I have the honor to be the chairman of the advisory board of this project, and I'm very proud of what is being done there and hoping we can go soon to expand it, depending on the funding, to other cities and, again, other countries. It will be great. Another activity that is being performed by members of the Pan-American Association of Ophthalmology is a diabetic retinopathy referral network in Peru. And it allows to have a number of diabetic patients that are being evaluated in rural areas, and they are being screened by nurses at hospitals in those very remote areas. And then they are seeing if there's any findings by ophthalmologists that will determine if those findings are findings that require evaluation by specialists that will then treat the patients. And they have already evaluated and screened more than 4,000 patients with 1,400 patients being sent to referral hospitals and more than 400 patients treated. This is another amazing initiative that is being performed in Latin America. We're very proud to be the premier association of ophthalmology in the Americas. We have members in more than 35 countries. We represent 26 national societies, in, again, in the Americas, the Caribbean, Spain, and Portugal. One of our main goals is prevention of blindness through education of our members. We emphasize and are proud to develop our young ophthalmologists and our not so young ophthalmologists. And we have had a couple of years that have been tough, of course, like everyone else because of this pandemic, but we have been able to stay on the top of the education for our members through our e-learning platform and had frequent webinars on all subspecialties. But we're planning to reunite in person our Pan-American Congress of Ophthalmology in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 2023. It's going to be a joint meeting with the Argentinian Council of Ophthalmology in, again, Buenos Aires, Argentina. I hope you can join us. Thank you so much for joining us for this activity. That concludes our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative in advancing your understanding in managing diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema in rural Latinx patients. And I hope you felt more confident about how diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema is treated now. And we'll be watching for new developments that may further improve the care of our patients. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Pan American Association of Ophthalmology.